HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's c-o-m-t-e-usa.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at things that have changed and things that are still in flux. From mothers balancing new lifestyles to the social stigma surrounding pumpkin spice. You got rid of the star rating system and talked about, like, I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about food. They recognized that safety was our motivation and, and they were very you know, receptive to the changes, understanding what we were trying to accomplish. A cupcake or a piece of bacon or a glass of rosé is not inherently gendered. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cutting the Curry. I'm your guest host, Carlos Escas. I'm excited for today's show. Today we will talk about the present and future of Romeo cheese. In my previous episode, we talked to Romeo cheese advocates in Europe, Latin America, and Australia to find out about their work on the ground. For today's episode, I bring you two academics who I hope will be able to show us the path forward. We have with us today Dr. Connolly and Dr. Heather Paxson. Dr. Donnelly is Professor of Nutrition and Food Science at the University of Vermont and an expert on listeria and other foodborne pathogens. Dr. Paxton is Professor of Anthropology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and teaches on food, family, and craft. They are both members of the Academic Advisory Committee in the Always Cheese Coalition and scholars of traditional cheese. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Carlos. It's great to be here. Yes, thank you, Carlos. I'm so excited to have you both join me and share with our audience some of the conversations we have had over the years. Let me start by asking, what cheese would you be having for Thanksgiving? <laughs> I'm going to have Rush Creek Reserve. Nice. From Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm going to serve a variety of Jasper Hill cheeses. <laughs> They're my neighbors, so got to eat local. Wonderful. Those sound delicious and a great way to start our conversation today. Whenever I eat a piece of cheese, I think about the many decisions that took place to bring that piece of cheese to my table. In grad school, I research on the politics of the everyday, which aim to explain how choices on the ground may have an effect in a political system. For example, how a decision like cutting the horns of cows have informed policy on the density of animals allowed in a barn. For my own research, your, your publications have been instrumental in understanding how decisions in the lab, in the farm, at the FDA, and by producers, distributors, and regulators have shaped the conversation about traditional and raw cheese in the United States. The conversation here in the U.S. is very different than, in, than elsewhere, and one that seems very much driven by trade policy. Dr. Donnelly, in your latest book, Ending the War on Artisanal Cheese and Artisan Cheese, you write about the policy debate around the protection of denomination of origin as possibly having an effect on regulation of traditional raw and raw milk cheeses in the United States, and how policies around pasteurization have been used as a mechanism of control for cheese quality in this debate. Can you tell us how do you see these pieces informing regulatory decisions on raw milk cheese production in the United States? Sure, Carlos. A great question. If you look at um, many of the protected cheeses, PDO, um, those cheeses, um, many of the PDOs require them to be made from raw milk. And so if you were a regulatory agency that wanted to keep raw milk or PDO cheeses out of the United States, you could simply mandate a pasteurization requirement for those products. And then the, they would no longer meet their PDO if they had to be made from raw milk. But the issue gets a little more complicated in that um, the U.S. basically redefined what pasteurization was. And um, the new working definition of pasteurization is um, a, a process or a series of processes that takes, um, that targets the pathogen of concern and lowers that pathogen to a level that's not um, significant to public health. And so when you look at many of the PDO cheeses that are imported into the United States, even though they start with raw milk, either curd cooking or acidification or um, getting rid of the water, all of those steps reduce microbial hazards to levels that don't represent a public health risk. And so um, raw milk cheeses can be made safely. And I think the record um, documents that. Fascinating. Um, thank you for that explanation. I, you know, I think I, I have said this in the past. I, you know, I, I always surprised that this is some of that definition. Uh, Dr. Paxson, you have recently written, written in your article, Rethinking Food and Its Eaters, about the black boxes created to explain away complex connections between our assumptions of science and the application of the scientific method. Could you tell us more about how pasteurization, for example, has been used by some as, quote unquote, an, an authoritative indicator or guarantor of good food? 
Sure. Um, the black box is a figure that uh, science studies scholars have borrowed from cybernetics. It refers to a technical operation that has been so well established that its effectiveness is taken for granted. And when we talk about something being black boxed, it means that it's closed to questioning. It's closed to even looking at how it operates. So I'm borrowing, um, applying the figure of the black box to pasteurization from geographer Colin Sage, who pointed out um, years ago, actually, that um, in cheese safety, pasteurization has been made into an effective black box, meaning that just like Kathy was saying, um, pasteurization is the effectiveness of pasteurization is sort of taken for granted as self-evident, right? Pasteurization is a time temperature relationship. The effectiveness is presumed by um, applying that time and temperature. <laughs> um, and, and what I argue in, in some of my work is that uh, the black boxing is symbolic as well as microbiological. <laughs> that what is black boxed is not only the eradication of whatever microbes are present, but an understanding of cleanliness and goodness and safety. Um, and one of the effects of, of that black boxing is for some who believe very strongly in the efficacy of pasteurization for ensuring um, food safety is not looking at for example, post-processing contamination, and Kathy's work with listeria is exemplary of this, and I'm sure we can talk about that further. Um, but in addition to that, so in addition to overestimating maybe the goodness <laughs> and the guarantee that pasteurization brings um, to food, it can also close off alternative possibilities for, for producing goodness. Um, and right, so anyway. <laughs> That's so interesting. Um... So just to understand this, um, I, you know, from reading both this article, uh, the book and the article and other things that you have published, to my understanding, pasteurization has been used as both a tool and a goal for the definition of quality cheese. However, in this light of current research, it's not always a straightforward, as the regulator would like us to understand. And that's what you both are saying, that there is something more complicated to understand what pasteurization is and that it normally just presented as a sort of clear, clean definition for both of these things. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it is. Um, again, you look at the way that most of the milk is produced in the United States. The industrial systems that we have the feeding of silage, the collecting of milk from multiple farms, putting it in a silo, storing it for several days, that type of system mandates pasteurization because you haven't built in um, safety in the controls leading up to that um, heating step. Many raw milk cheese producers, they manage the risks in the production chain so, for instance, in many of the cooked curd cheeses that are made in Switzerland and France, they prohibit silage feeding. Silage is a well-recognized source of listeria. So you can eliminate that hazard by foregoing silage feeding and instead feeding animals on pasture or dry hay. We know you get a much lower level of listeria incidence in milk. And then in, in the... Um, curd cooking part of the manufacture of many of the Swiss style cheeses, the 
curd style, you're accomplishing the same level of heat treatment or more than the level of heat treatment than you would in a pasteurization process. So you've really got to look at your whole system and how you manage risks within that system. Right. Um, that, you know, in our last episode uh, that I was hosting, uh, we heard from um, Will Studd and some of his comments were exactly this point of how the regulator in Australia, for example, allows for um, those cheeses made in the Alpine region by uh, cooking curd uh, to be um, sold and exported and sold in, in Australia, but from cheese production in the country is not. And, and this is some of that uh, explanation for our listeners. Um, I have so many follow-up questions, but I think I'm going to take a break here. And we will be after a brief announcement from our supporters. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conte within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conte. Conte takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conte is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conte is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. Welcome back. I am Carlos Yescas, your guest host for the day, talking with Dr. Heather Paxson and Catherine Donnelly on the present and future of Romel cheese. Before the break, we were talking about how the regulator has used pasteurization as a litmus test in the production of quality cheese. Before the show, our guests shared with me two articles to consider for our conversation. Dr. Paxson's article published in the journal Food, Culture, and Society, is titled Don't Pack a Pest, Parts, Holes, and the Porosity of Food Borders. And it talks about how not all borders are created and monitored equally. While ports of entry are well-regulated, points of crossing are porous and allow for movement of some products outside of the preferred channels of transit. 
Dr. Donnelly sent us an article titled Outbreaks Attributed to Cheese, Differences Between Outbreak Causes by Unpasteurized and Pasteurized Products in the United States from 1998 to 2011, published by Dr. Hannah Gould and others. In this article, these researchers analyzed how smuggled unpasteurized cheese was responsible for some listeria outbreaks during the period, but also how important an important number of outbreaks was linked to pasteurized cheese contaminated post-production at the point of sale or service. I will post both articles in the notes of this show. Now I'd like us to talk about the future and how these two articles that you share with me sort of inform that. In a couple of weeks, we will have a new team at the head of the FDA, the CDC, the USDA, and the USDR. All these agencies are, have an impact on the cheese produced today and in tomorrow. These political appointees at the head of these agencies may be more responsive to science, at least that's what we were promised, and their findings be, findings be published without much partisan interference. In this light, I would like to hear from you what other research is happening today, or the one that you uh, sent us, that needs to be considered in the discussion about our food system, production, and regulation of the f- towards the future. You want to start, Heather? I think um, Kathy's probably more up to date than I am on um, the microbiological research um, on on outbreaks and food safety. But one thing I would like to say about regulation is the regulatory uncertainty itself with our sort of 380, 360 degree or 180 degree swings back and forth in terms of pro-regulation, anti-regulation, and just the uncertainty from all the politicization around it um, is itself a challenge to cheese producers and importers. When there's so much regulatory uncertainty and so many um, twists and turns, and it, it just leaves everybody guessing, what's next going to be on the radar? Is it, you know, is is the 60-day rule going to continue to be under under question? Are they suddenly going to find another thing to to hold to cause reasons to hold cheeses at the border? And that uncertainty we've seen producers stop production of particular cheeses for a while or stop importing cheeses. Um, so that's 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 just something to keep in mind. It's not even so much sometimes what the rules are, but that ongoing uncertainty. And then when there are new rules, the lack of funding to actually support them in terms of compliance and enforcement, um, which, which is difficult for the industry. Right. Dr. Donnelly? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think a lot about these issues. Um, it's ironic that I just finished a three-week um, remote conference series with the FAO and WHO looking at um, list, a listeria risk assessment. And I'm heartened that the one of the first statements made by President-elect Biden was the fact that we, the United States, will rejoin the World Health Organization. And I think in that framework, working with the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, we can have globally harmonized regulations that depend on scientific risk assessment. So this puts these trade issues in a scientific context. So for instance, when we were talking about the Australian regulations, they allow the sale of 
um, Swiss style cooked curd cheeses as well as Italian grana cheeses based on a comprehensive scientific risk assessment that said those cheeses and their production methods achieve an equivalent level of safety as would those products being made from pasteurized milk. And so um, if we can let risk assessment guide our um, regulations, then there's a scientific context that makes us um, consistent with the rest of the globe. And public health is important to all of us, but when it's politicized, we can see some dangers in that. And I think um, a lot of the FDA actions are very much political and not scientifically based decisions around raw milk cheeses. And when that's the case, if I might add, um, and I agree with Kathy there, it it does it does tempt people to 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 paint outside the lines a little bit, not not to break the law, but just to like be creative in packaging and and I don't know, it's it's a it's it's an issue. No, well, is- the, the other thing I would hope in the future is that our regulators become educators. Um, I think that. The FDA has taken a heavy hand in too many instances. We at the University of Vermont have embraced education and shared that knowledge with cheesemakers to achieve, for instance, listeria control. And when you do that, you're managing risks. And it's a far more productive way to regulate than going in with a heavy hand in a, in an environment where there's a lack of understanding about what's necessary. And I took a look at the Food Safety Modernization Act requirements, the, um, the um, controls for preventive controls for human food. And in those regulations are a lot is a lot of flexibility, at least the language of flexibility around process controls like cooking and refrigeration and acidifying and critical limits and sanitation controls, those are things we regularly work with, with cheesemakers to make them understand the importance of achieving these critical limits and documenting that. And so the framework's all there. It's simply how it's applied and um, how it's utilized. That's fascinating. What in your mind will be, or who in, who should be the people speaking on behalf of product of, of the producers? I, th- I feel sometimes that um, producers in the United States have been put in a position of fear, and that either they don't want to approach the regulator for fear of being closed down, or for fear of being. Um, having a magnifying glass on their processes. Um, and so it seems that in some cases, in some states, the um, trade associations, if we want to call them the cheese guilds and the cheese councils, have been the ones taking on the mantle. And for some time, uh, even the American Cheese Society uh, did some of that work uh, in, in, in sort of meeting with the FDA. But if we are reimagining sort of our connection uh, with a new administration and a new form of um, you know, value in science, 
who should be in, in charge uh, of this or who should be front and center? Uh, should it be the, the academics working on this? Should it be producers? Should it be actually consumers? And should this be driven by consumers themselves asking for um, a space in, in sort of the light uh, of what the Old West Cheese Coalition has done in the past? What do you both think? Well, I'd be happy to speak to that. Um, I, I just came from my food safety and public policy class, and we talked about regulation and how no one learns in an environment of fear. And so if you so for a long time within Congress, there's have been calls for the need for a single food safety agency. And under the Obama administration, um, it was decided that the agency best position to take on all of food safety would be the FDA. The Trump administration had a different view on the same issue, wanting to put the USDA in charge of food safety. And I would argue the USDA approach would probably be the better one. You look at USDA's regulation of meat safety, for instance, they have on-site inspectors who work closely with companies with respect to listeria control, their regulations are such that if a meat processor um, finds listeria contamination, they're given an opportunity. Instead of being shut down and forcing a recall, they're given an opportunity to figure out what went wrong and to resolve the problem. And after they feel the problem's been resolved, USDA will go back in, do more testing, do more inspection. And if the problem's been solved, the company's good to go. It's kind of this ability to work through problems that I think is missing on the FDA side. And there's a lot of fear. And when people are fearful, they engage in behavior that isn't consistent with how they would behave if there was a less fearful regulatory approach. I think that's exactly right, um, and, that, and that's what I was getting at in in pointing out that that regulation, meaning rulemaking, is is only part of it, right? It really is about communicating the rules, but also what's the relationship between the producer and the inspector? Is it a, a relationship of mutual education? Um, we might. Think of it not so much as regulation or not only as regulation, but also a matter of regularization of practice, of best practices, and understanding that a cooked curd cheese is a different microbial environment than a bloomy rind cheese and has to be thought of as, as, a, distinct, um, as a distinct project in terms of ensuring safety. No, definitely. I, I think there's so many good ideas in there. Um, I think for a long time we have been talking about um, this on the side of the producers and how the producers would like to um, not um, have the fear of the regulator, but also uh, learn from others and have that openness. Um, what I think is interesting at the moment is that uh, the last rule in the in the implementation of FESMA is this issue of traceability. And so many questions are coming up about um, sort of steps to ensure uh, the food safety. And some of those steps um, sort of rely on what uh, um, they are calling the 
so-called kill steps, right? That it is cooking or pasteurizing or, you know, putting under pressure, all these steps that sort of ensure that the, that the food has changed substantially and so the traceability uh, sort of link can be broken. Uh, but when looking at all of this, uh, as a rule uh, that is coming from the FDA, it just seems as, as something that is really expensive to do and, and that a lot of the small producers won't be able to do. Um, one of the issues here is 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 uh, similarly, um, you know, here in Massachusetts, for example, we heard uh, that one of the issues was that producers needed more training, but they didn't know where to go and get that training. And so one, at the beginning of the Massachusetts Cheese Guild work was to sort of consolidate that training uh, in, in the guild and, and help them. We have not been able to do that, uh, you know, at the, at the sort of federal level with the FDA. And so I'm wondering what is what is the part that is missing? What what is the FDA not hearing from industry um, that that we may say and be uh, you know put in a position like what Kathy was saying uh, with meat producers that have they have a better relationship or seem to have a better relationship with their regulator? I think this is a place where consumers could drive a lot of the changes in public policy. You look at who has the ear of the FDA, and it's not the small-scale food producers. And again, I was just discussing this issue with my class. Um, you look at FDA regulations, and they're written largely for the large-scale companies that have layers of scientific in-house resources and the money to afford to implement the practices and the produce rule was a good example where um, some of the iterations were, well, any producer generating less than $500,000 a year, we're going to exempt them from this rule. Contrast that with the, FD, with the USDA, where when HACCP was being implemented, they had recognition of very small producers, companies defined as having 10 or fewer employees. And so right away, the mentality at USDA respects the very small scale producers. USDA or FDA regulations are written for the very large companies and the large companies only. Hmm. But this is something that not only sort of affects these um, producers, but also affects uh, distributors and importers, right, Heather? This is this is a part of the regulation that it also um, sort of involves those processes, and that seems to be that um, the 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 risk is being managed in different ways. Uh, is this a place where all, where the voice of the consumer will also help, or do we actually need? Uh, sort of the involvement of organizations of distributors or organizations of, of importers? Well, I think the voice of the consumer is very strong with imports because, as Kathy was saying, so many of the European cheeses that are among the most you know, desired of imports are, are made with raw milk. And if there were a, a, a wholesale you know, ban on raw milk cheeses, um, it just wouldn't be tenable from a, from a market standpoint. Um, but I think the challenge to importers, one of the challenges to importers here is similar to producers, and that just has to do with classification, 
right? The the FDA has been more or less regulating um, cheese safety on this binary distinction between pasteurized and unpasteurized milk so that, you know, the regulatory exception that allows raw milk cheeses to be sold is that they have to be aged for 60 days at a temperature of no less than 70 degrees centigrade. Um, but raw milk cheeses, like pasteurized cheeses, are not the same. There's so much variability within those two categories um, that fall through the cracks. And what I understand, at least from imports, is that whether or not the um, cheese is made from pasteurized or raw milk is not even on the paperwork that is necessary to file um, as part of the import papers. And so regulators would perhaps, you know, discern the possibility of a raw milk cheese getting in just by reputation of its of its type. Um, but that's, you know, it's so indirect. So um, the, the classification uh, question, I think, is is endemic to, to all of these conversations. And of course, my, you know, in, if we think about cheeses as microbial ecologies and try to classify those in terms of safety, they're not necessarily gonna match up with the categories that we use to sell cheese, right, as culinary categories. And so there's, there's a lot of mismatch there. Right, and you know, this is obviously one of those points where you know, we in the sort of front-facing, you know, talking to cheese lovers, we may say something about bloomy rye or surface mm -hmm. ripen, but in the code, it comes out as camembert or brie. And uh, and then, you know, the, the U.S. trade representative, when it poses tariffs, imposes tariffs on those uh, categories, but not necessarily on what we understand as cheese. And so there is really a mixed match. And so here I go back to what Dr. Donahue was saying about sort of a globalized harmonization is uh, sort of to to bring, would this be bringing the codex alimentarius um, into into par? Is, is I know there's something at the UN happening with uh, coming up with new definitions and new characteristics. Is this a space? And who who should be involved in that? Is it, is it the just the government FDA? Is it also um, you know uh, social uh, so the the public, the people that eat cheese? Who who? I'm just trying to understand what is at play here. Yeah, and you know you look at um, how European food safety regulations evolve, and. It, Contrast that to here in the United States, where um, any regulatory decision has to be based on science and science only. So peer-reviewed publications um, drive the decisions that we make from a regulatory standpoint. In Europe, there are sociological considerations, economic considerations, culture, heritage. All of that feeds into regulatory decision-making. And I would argue that we might, it might be time in this country to have a broader view of how we come up with um, regulations around the safety of our foods. We're, consumers in Europe are equally vulnerable to the pathogens that we're trying to control here in the United States. There's just a different approach. And that's why I think these globally harmonized regulations that give consideration to economic situations. You look at climate change, 
that's going to have a huge impact on food safety. And so we're all better off looking at something much more broad than just what's affecting our borders, especially when so much of our food supply is imported. However, one of the worries always is that this globalized um, code may be easier to hijack by big industry. That that being said, um, you know one of the issues here, for example, in climate change, in in coming up with pa- the Paris Agreement, was that um, the so much was achieved because everyone was being participating, right? That everyone had a vision of it, and so that's why it ended up being a successful agreement as opposed to these sort of trade deals that exist everywhere in, the, in place. Um, I guess my last question to both of you is what is, um, you know, in sort of thinking of the future, we also have seen that um, the, the CDC has become really involved in the um, regulation and in following up uh, outbreaks of listeria. In almost what is, will seem is a criminalization uh, of food production that is perceived as uh, creating risk. Do we run the risk here of creating a system to what um, Heather was saying at, at the beginning, where people will completely shy away from things that they see as risky because they may end up in jail or they may end up uh, you know, having a problem with a regulator. And in fact, the, 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 the fight for raw milk cheese is, is being fought somewhere else and that somewhere else is in this fear uh, that, that uh, so many producers already have. Yeah, I think the, um, the use of whole genome sequencing, while it can tell us so much about um, different organisms and the way that they function, if that same information is now being used to um, incriminate food producers, going multiple years back, there was an outbreak linked to Bluebell ice cream, and the CDC um could look at five years worth of um, sporadic appearances of a strain of listeria that infected patients and was linked to ice cream. And um, again, if we could use this information to help food producers produce safe food, I know in the cheese industry, we've never had resistance from artisan producers to um, information that helps them produce safer products. And so You know, I'd rather see the carrot approach regulatory-wise at first. There are always going to be companies that aren't committed to safe food production. That's when you lay down that regulatory hammer. But food production, and especially cheese production in this country, is at this critical juncture where we're going to lose a lot of what has been traditional products that consumers have long enjoyed, not just here in the United States, but globally. And I look at FDA's challenge a few years back to ban wooden boards used in cheese aging. And it's a great example of how consumers and cheesemakers mobilized, went to their congressional representatives, 
armed with science that said what the FDA was was doing was not scientifically valid. And we suddenly saw the FDA backing down off of this position. I think we need more efforts of that nature and those important consumer and cheesemaker voices to be heard in crafting good regulations. I keep thinking at this moment about what lessons from COVID and this pandemic might um, inform the future of raw milk cheese and the future of food safety generally. I'm daring to be hopeful, I guess, that one lesson is that full-scale eradication and shutdown of certain kinds of activities is not necessarily the way to protect public health, that it's possible to go through our lives with precaution, with practicing good hygiene, um, with being scrupulous in our, in our care for, for our, what we do and for each other. And we can have raw milk cheese. <laughs> we can have dinner parties or whatever um, safely without a total shutdown of, of production. Um, so, so maybe if, every, if everybody were to wash their hands properly <laughs> in everything that they do, um, we, could, we could have more consumer choice. Well, and it really comes down to managing risks. And that's yeah. what modern food safety systems demand. And it, it's quite possible to manage microbiological risks in cheese production. In fact, good cheesemakers do that every single day or else they wouldn't have saleable products. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, that's a great note to end this. There's so many things to consider. Uh, unfortunately, we're arriving at the t end of this. I want to thank you both for joining me today and the work you have done for cheese and your support for the Always Cheese Coalition. It's great talking to you both. Thanks. Yes, likewise, such a pleasure and happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> happy Thanksgiving. Listeners, we will link to the academic research we have mentioned in the notes of this episode. We hope that this conversation has sparked your interest in thinking about the future we want for raw milk cheese and our country. Remember, you have the power to change the system in place. The first step is to ask questions. If you like this episode and would like to hear more about ways to impact research and regulation, please follow the Always Cheese Coalition online. I thank our sound editors at Heritage Radio Network and also encourage you to follow them online. Join us next week for more Cutting the Curd. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.